0: Talking history. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender.
1: And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. one small step for
2: man, one diaphragm for mankind. Auktiloin, Argus, Akhoiza.
0: Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, The Myth of the Modern Surgeon. Death, murder and politics in Ireland in the 19th century through the eyes of the Irish coroner. And to end the show, we look at Hitler's attempted coup in 1923 and the forgotten crisis of that year. You can email us your thoughts and views to talkinghistory at newstalk.com and we'd love to hear from you. Last week we looked at the history of Bank of Ireland on this, the 240th anniversary of its founding, with a special focus on the beautifully preserved House of Lords Chamber in its College Green Dublin location. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the Newstalk app, powered by Go Loud, our web website newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show with the myth of the modern surgeon. Brilliant, volatile and invariably male, the surgeon stereotype is a widespread and instantly recognisable part of Western culture. Setting out to anatomize the stereotype, a new book offers an exciting new history of modern and contemporary British surgery on this the 75th anniversary of the founding of the NHS. I'm delighted to welcome the author of the book, Agnes Arnold Forster, to the show. The book is called Cold Hard Steel, The Myth of the Modern Surgeon. It's published in hardback by Manchester University Press. And Agnes, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Can we begin then with this myth of the modern surgeon? What exactly is it? Is it this idea of a a white male authoritarian figure who, as you show, is often portrayed as being quite angry?
3: Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of the classic macho. I don't know if everyone today is still familiar with the Sir Lancelot Scrap figure from Doctor in the House, which is a really popular series of books and, and films from the 50s and 60s. Um, but it's kind of the quintessential paternalistic Granite George, very, you know, as I say, kind of male, often yelling at his juniors and um, often very not, not particularly interested in explaining to his patients what he's doing, but just saying, I know what's best for you and I'm going to do it anyway. Um, but it should kind of be resonant with lots of people, even if it's not um, something people think about all the time. And And I also suppose one of the most important things is that the stereotypical surgeon, doesn't tend to have a huge amount of emotional investment in his patients. He's emotionally detached, distant, dispassionate, that kind of thing.
0: And often lacking emotional intelligence. And do you think that's just the way surgeons were being portrayed in books, on television, in movies? Or was it because there was evidence that this was the way a lot of them were encouraged to be in real life?
3: of a mix. So I definitely think that most of that impression comes from how surgery is portrayed in the media and, and outwardly. Um, because when you look at what surgeons are writing for each other in the 1950s, just after the foundation of the NHS, they're actually much more subtle and complicated about what kind of emotions they think surgeons should possess or perform. Um, and so there's a lot more nuance and, and sensitivity in the way that surgeons think that each other should behave. Um, But there is also obviously this idea that in order to operate, you need a certain degree of emotional detachment because you're cutting through flesh, etc. But I think that that part of the story is much smaller maybe than most people think. And I think when you speak to surgeons working today, they'll talk very movingly about their patients. And actually, I don't think very many of them are particularly emotionally detached. Um, it's It's a stereotype. It's not really the reality.
0: And you've mentioned some of the fictional representations of surgeons. And I think I loved that in your methodology, in your approach, the fact that you were also looking at how surgeons have been represented on screen, in books, on television, because that's an important way of shaping the, the popular perception of them.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the way I think most of us are going to get a sense of what doctors, nurses, surgeons are like. You know, we might go into hospital occasionally, but and we we might know the odd surgeon or the odd nurse. But generally speaking, most of our understanding of these professions comes from popular culture. And so if we want to know anything about the myths and stereotypes and sort of uh, kind of identities of healthcare professionals, then we need to look at popular culture, even if some historians of healthcare haven't paid a huge amount of attention to it in the past.
0: And what about that soap opera that you talk about, Emergency Ward Ten? How groundbreaking or how how different was that?
3: Well, it was the first carbolic soap opera, which is what they used to call them, and um, which the so carbolic soap used to be used in hospital wards and has a very distinctive smell. So, if anyone who kind of grew up in the fifties and sixties and seventies, they'll probably remember that smell. It's a very kind of chemically smell. Um, and so these were called these um, TV shows that were set in hospitals about healthcare, carbolic soap operas. And Emergency War 10 was really groundbreaking in the genre. I mean, now we have them all the time. You know, Grey's Anatomy, ER, Casualty, Hobby City. There are, you know, tons of them. But Emergency War 10 was one of the first. It was also groundbreaking in other ways. It it showed an interracial kiss for so one of the first times. It was um, both a kind of hospital drama, but also a romance. You know, so it was kind of an interesting and innovative um, format, but it was also incredibly popular, um, and people would write into the TV studios asking for advice about various clinical issues or about people's healthcare problems. And you know, it was so kind of compelling and, and felt so real to people, like to viewers, that they would kind of almost conflate it with real hospital life and real healthcare professionals. So it really like managed to kind of tug on people's heartstrings and get into people's psyche about health.
0: And people used to actually write letters to the doctors thinking that they were real life people.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So obviously the actors are doing a really good job. (laughs) Very convincing.
0: Now, your study is a study of British surgery, but I think if we were to look at Irish surgery or American surgery or the history of surgery in countries all around the world, I think probably you would see a a kind of a similar story and a similar mythology.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that medicine kind of did or surgery did in the 20th century was it made itself an international profession. So I've written a little bit in the book about the number of surgeons from Britain, but also from Ireland, from Canada, from the US who traveled around learning from surgeons in other parts of the world. And that was incredibly common to do a lot of kind of international research or international kind of talking circuits or or go and visit hospitals abroad. And so They all kind of inform each other. So it's not an accident that the sort of surgical stereotype is one that isn't just about Britain, but kind of covers most of the West and indeed also a lot of countries that were part of the British Empire. So there's a huge number of Indian doctors, for example, who come to Britain, of course, and and work in the NHS. And a lot of them also adopt some of these stereotypes or or kind of try to conform to some of these um, visions of what it means to be a good surgeon.
0: The book is also a study of gender, class, and race. And maybe let's talk about gender first. What difference did did female surgeons make? Because very small number in the in the nineteenth century, but then uh, increasing numbers, and 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 that has also had an impact then on the mythology.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've said the sort of, you know we, we both said a few times that this stereotype is kind of quintessentially male, and I think that that. Holds true. I mean, even today, I think most people think that if they were to sort of conjure a picture of a surgeon in their minds, they might think of a man. Even though, obviously, we have loads of women who now work as surgeons in in, all over the world. Um, And I think that they did shape the profession. But I think one of the arguments I tried to make in the book is that perhaps they didn't um, weren't allowed to shape it enough that there are, it's still incredibly difficult to be a woman in surgery. The way that surgery functions, the way that you have to work if you are a surgeon working in Britain today and indeed lots of parts of the world. And you know, Incredibly long hours, um, very little time for caring responsibilities. You have to kind of have a full-time attitude for, or often have to have a full-time attitude to your work in order to be able to succeed. You know, the sort of structures in place make it very difficult for women to enter the profession and progress in the profession. Um, and I think also that there's there are subtler cultural problems. You know, there's very much still an old boys club in surgery where, you know, the kind of culture, the sort of socializing happens often in places that historically have been harder for women to access. I write a bit about how uh, surgeons in the 70s and 80s would spend a lot of time grouse hunting or at the golf course and obviously women can do those things and but traditionally haven't been so included in those spaces Um, and so there's a kind of both structural and technical things that make it difficult for women to participate in the profession and also cultural more subtle things that make it harder for women to succeed.
0: And are women portrayed differently then in the fictional representations in the movies and in the television programs and in the books?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is subtle. So there are lots of female surgeons in. So one of the things that I write a lot about in the book and, and elsewhere is um, romance fiction from the 50s and 60s, so Mills and Boone novels. Um, and they had these books called Doctor Nurse romances, which were all about, I mean, as it sounds like, doctors and nurses and often surgeons. Um, and there were lots of female surgeons in these novels um, who were incredibly skilled, technically proficient, you know, respectable characters. But one of the things they often do is in these novels they leave the profession after they get married, and which I think is both reflective of the reality and also helps kind of construct an expectation about what female healthcare professionals might do. Um, But also, although they're often incredibly good at their jobs, they also often have more kind of feminine skills. So they're often more emotionally detached, more emotionally intelligent, more caring, more delicate. They might do types of surgery that are seen as more feminine, or obviously they're not, like um, pediatric surgery or anything that requires kind of fine dexterity. Um, but then there are also female surgeons in these fictional things that try and buck those stereotypes and kind of try and be, you know, really macho almost in their, in their styles and their, in the way that they behave in order to fit in better with the old boys' club of surgery. So there's a lot of different things going on, but, but I think there is, you know, some subtlety there.
0: You have a very powerful chapter on race and ethnicity in surgery, and it begins with uh, an account from 2020. So, you know, very recent uh, history where after uh, the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, starting up uh, uh, reports from uh, the Royal College of Surgeons of England about how an independent review had shown that there wasn't enough diversity. And in the way that uh, surgeons are being treated, you know, it wasn't equal and it wasn't fair.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And that has a long, and this is another example, I think a little bit like the gender one, where there's a history of very, very poor representation of people of color in surgery and a history of racism and discrimination within the profession. But there's also, unfortunately, a lot of that continues today. And it's only relatively recently that professional organizations like the Royal College of Surgeons of England have started to grapple seriously with this as a problem or even to collect relevant statistics on the subject. So it's very hard to find data on how many black surgeons there were, say, in the 80s, because all the professional bodies just weren't collecting that information. And I think that's quite telling in and of itself, that they just didn't consider this to be something of importance. Um, And throughout the second half of the 20th century, which is the period my book covers, there are loads and loads of stories from black surgeons from Asian surgeons talking about how they felt discriminated against, how difficult it was for them to get jobs, particularly at the kind of fancy teaching hospitals in the big cities, and how they struggle to fit in. I mean, there are also obviously stories of great success, of surgeons of colour who have gone on to be you know, amazing contrib- contributors to the profession. But I think that those people tend to be in the minority because it is such a challenging working environment. And it has been such a challenging working environment. I think these things are changing, but um, I would argue a bit too slowly.
0: And what about class then? How difficult is it to enter the profession? And there is a perception of it as being for those from elite or middle-class backgrounds, and and, and access is something that you explore in the book.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is still a big problem in medicine as a whole, but surgery specifically. That that you're much more likely to get into medical school if you've been privately educated, um, and and these things are both kind of um, practical things. Like you know, you might just have a kind of. More access to other healthcare professionals, but also you might see other healthcare professionals, say, in your family, and so see it as something that you can aspire to. So, role modeling is incredibly important, and I think difficult if you're from a working class background. Um, and also, I think all that sort of stuff I was talking about in terms of the old boys club is that, you know, it has boys in the name, so it sounds like it might be just to do with gender. But as I've mentioned, it's also been something that's ex- excluded people of colour, but it's also excluded working class people because the culture and the kind of hobbies and the social life that historically surgeons have participated in have also been generally things that have been open mostly to middle and upper class people. And there's also a huge amount of kind of personal wealth that's required if you want to be a surgeon in the 60s, 70s and 80s. I talked before about surgeons traveling abroad, you know, all of that kind of stuff, those sort of extras that you kind of need to advance through the profession often come with a lot of money. And even now, going through the exam process, just required to be, you know, a qualified surgeon in the UK is expensive, um, and so I think there are lots of both, again, as with gender, as with race, structural barriers, but also more subtle cultural ones that make it harder for people to feel like they fit in if they don't conform to particular
0: mould. Do you think that over the years, many surgeons like the, the myth because it means that they are able to kind of switch off and focus on uh, the work, the the operation, the cold using the cold, hard steel of your title, and that in a way it suits them to play up to that image and that mythology?
3: I mean, absolutely. I think there's no way that this stereotype would have survived if it didn't also have something beneficial to people. I think that's what makes it so complicated and so intractable that there are elements of this stereotype, So there are all these bad things about all things that we might see as bad, like paternalism, emotional disinterest, or kind of being gruff or harsh, um, being authoritarian, all these sorts of things. But they all have kind of a flip side, which is actually quite positive or could be seen more positively. Like if you're paternalistic, that might also mean that you know what's best for your patients and that you are good at making decisions quickly and effectively, Um, being emotionally Disinterested or, or even cruel, although those things are bad. You know, the flip side of that is, as you say, being able to um, separate yourself, protect yourself from some of the day-to-day traumas of the of working in healthcare, of operating, of of patient death, of, of the things, of the, the really terrible things that you might have to encounter as a surgeon. It allows you to protect yourself. Um, and so, of course, there are lots of things about this myth that I try and kind of anatomize that do serve surgeons, that help them. And 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 you know, I think that that's got to be taken into consideration but it also means that some of those bad things are particularly hard to to get rid of or to um, escape from because they're tangled up with all of these more positive attributes and and lots of surgeons quite understandably you know they find a lot of meaning and personal identity in the way that surgeons are seen or the way they're kind of the sort of image of the surgeon and so are reluctant to kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater, as it were you know they want to keep some elements of it and that even if that does mean keeping some of the negative elements And so I think it's complicated, and and I do understand why, for some people, these myths, or some elements of these myths, are very appealing.
0: And some very innovative approaches in the book, because you not only conducted interviews with uh, people who were surgeons and involved in surgery, but also used social media to get uh, different insights as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
3: I mean, if anyone is interested in, in the weird and wonderful life of surgery today, you just have to spend a bit of time on Twitter, because there are lots of surgeons who really love social media and spend a lot of time there. Um, and it's a fascinating place where you can see some of these myths um, play out in real time or people kind of conforming to them or rejecting them or debating them um, and seeing how, you know, some of these myths have, have, have might still be working for people, how they where they still might be, excluding some people from the profession. And um, it's also a great place for me or it, it was a great place for me to get in touch with surgeons Um You know, I'm trying to, as you said, do interviews with people. And it was one of the ways that I recruited people to my study, although I had to be quite careful because obviously the kind of surgeons who might use social media might not necessarily be the most representative type of surgeon or at least had to be careful to kind of supplement that route with other ones.
0: Do you think if we were to return to this subject in 50 years' time, the myth would have been completely dispelled? Would we have a different image of of, of a surgeon in our heads? Or do you think it will survive?
3: I mean, that's a great question. I think, um, I hope that the myth will be different. I hope that it will be more diverse, more emotionally subtle. Um, I think, you know, there are a lot of these things about the kind of emotional detachment expectations, there's real harm to surgeons, you know, I think it can make it a very difficult profession to practice and um, because it means that there's often little space for reflection or kind of therapeutic in- interventions. There's lot of um, kind of questions about the impact of, of some of these emotional detachment expectations on surgeons' well-being. Um, so I hope it's different. I think that there will still be elements of the surgical stereotype that retain, It's only because, well, so some of the reasons I mentioned before in terms of how some aspects of it do serve surgeons, they like it, but also because um, popular culture still keeps cranking out these stereotypes. I mean, I don't really talk so much about um, programs like Grey's Anatomy in this book because it's an American TV show um, and it's very recent, but you know, that still is full of so many of these stereotypes and I don't really anticipate um, uh, popular culture changing dramatically and so from people outside the medical profession. I think that stereotype is going to continue.
0: Well, it's a brilliant new book. It's called Cold, Hard Steel The Myth of the Modern Surgeon, published in hardback by Manchester University Press. The author is Agnes Arnold Forster. And, Agnes, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you
3: so much for having me.
0: We'll be back with more talking history on News Talk. Right after this. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Coroners who conducted inquests into sudden and suspicious thefts in 19th century Ireland were viewed with disdain and disrespect in a society that was highly politicised and deeply divided. While the men who served in this role represented the authority of government and the need for social order and justice, it often put them at odds with the local elites, particularly when they were exposing corruption, social and moral failures, and sectarian murders. A new book on one Irish coroner in County Monaghan shows how his inquests exposed abuses of power and authority during a time when the county's political life was controlled by a landowning conservative elite. And they helped reveal to the public the injustice and corruption at the heart of society. The book is called... The Irish Coroner, Death, Murder and Politics in County Monaghan, 1846 to 1878. It's published in hardback by Fourcourts Press. And I'm delighted to welcome the author, Michelle McGough-McCann to the show tonight. Michelle, you're very welcome.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Can you tell us about this, in this, uh, this coroner then, William Charles Waddell? Who was he and why were you so excited to find all of his records?
2: Yeah, well, so Waddle's this great representative of other men that are serving as coroners during the 19th century. Um, he's an industrious merchant, he's a landowner, a gentleman, and he works as a land agent for his wealthy uncle, who's a Dublin businessman uh, called Charles Hopes. Um, and he he's also comes from a lineage of Scottish Presbyterians and landed in Ulster. So he's, he's representative because coroners at that time weren't just a coroner, it wasn't you were just a medical doctor or a lawyer, which is, is often misunderstood, is they were, these were men that wanted to raise their social profile in 19th century society, and they often did many things, just like Waddle. Um, and what's so exciting about his case books in the significance of them, is that they are so rare, and they're so valuable to Irish history, they're the only known set of records of their kind and they span 31 years of his work from the first inquest that he took in May in 1846 through the November of 1877. And they have this incredibly rich detail, like the location of where the inquest took place on the body, the witness's testimony, and the medical evidence. And each is recorded with the cost of the inquest. And I discovered the books nearly over a 20-year time period. The first book um, was the second case book. And that covered the years from 1856 to 1876, which is still in private hands. And I used that as the source material for my first monograph, which is Melancholy Madness. And then in 2013, I discovered that Waddle's first casebook, the Famine Casebook, covering the years from 1846 to 1855, had been uncatalogued and was available at the Clonus Library. And this was the catalyst for my PhD research, which I completed at Queen's University of Belfast in 2019. Um, and over the course of those years, um, I found his third and last case book um, covering years from 1876 to 77. And it meant I had this complete set of inquests um, that really provide insight into the lives of the poor, because most of the people in the inquest were poor and marginal groups. Um, and the inquest show the damaging effects of political economy, for example, during the famine, um, the political tensions of sectarian murder. And that's just a few themes that emerge. And all these culminated into my publication, which is The Irish Corner.
0: And as you say, you know, the 31 years begins uh, in that famine year of 1846. And you get a real sense of, you know, the shame that people felt, you know, with with starving during that terrible time. You get a real sense of, you know, uh, the suffering that, that so many people were experiencing.
2: Yeah, I mean, what, what the inquests reveal are these attitudes um, toward the poor um, from the local elite. So that's one particular aspect that I really try to tease out and the inquests truly reveal. Um, and yeah, you mentioned shame. is. Yeah, one example is in the spring of 1847 is the inquest started to reveal that some people were determined to support themselves at a time when there was little or no employment. And they refused to enter, enter the workhouse and died of want and starvation. And one inquest that was held on a, a man named Mick Burke in June of, of 1849, he, he died of want or starvation. And his wife told the coroner's jury that her husband ate well, generally, you know, ate three meals a day, and that he'd gone to the poorhouse sooner, but only when they had nothing left to sell and not a minute sooner. And however, there's a note in, in Waddle's casebook that refutes her testimony and it states that the jury told Sarah Burke that she wasn't swearing the truth, as they, all the neighbors, they knew for some time past that Mick Burke wouldn't be persuaded to go into the workhouse, and in fact that he begged amongst them. So the revelation that, that Sarah Burke is lying about having enough food available to keep her husband alive really reflects that shame and just exacerbates even further um, the tensions and the difficult times that people were living through, but also the value of the inquest that, that uh, are in Waddle's casebook.
0: So Michelle, what exactly was the role of the coroner and what was the significance of having an inquest? What exactly was the inquest?
2: So yeah, the primary duties of the coroner are to investigate the causes and authorship of, of sudden, violent or otherwise unnatural deaths in the community. And the investigation of death and the inquest were intended to establish if a crime had been committed. So while the inquest was a public court intended to offer transparency into the circumstances that led to the taking of life, and while it represented the authority of government and the need for social order and justice, it also exposed a society that was deeply politically divided. So the work of the coroner, um, the predominant belief is that those in Irish local government abused the system to support their own politics and interests and many citizens were disturbed over how revenues were spent and, and misappropriated so the coroner is paid one is paid a fee uh, this is uh, throughout the 19th century until the very end of it
0: and did you need particular qualifications for it did you need medical experience or legal experience or who could serve as a coroner
2: sure so coroners in Ireland were predominantly protestant men and they shared the religion with others in local government, which contributed c- contributed to its um, homogeneity. Um, so these are often men with no professional qualification. They were landowners who aspired to attain or maintain the status of gentlemen. So uh, even though some had legal or medical education or experience or were civil servants, merchants, justices of peace, you know, they had a combination of these backgrounds. And like I said earlier, that's why I Waddle such a good reflection of of what coroners looked like and what their, their backgrounds were. And there were approximately 100 men, more or less, who would hold the of coroner across Ireland at any given time in the 19th century. And the composition of the religious affiliation should be really considered and examined. And I say this because, interestingly, it was in June of 1823, you have radical MP Joseph Hume he he's, uh, reads a list of offices um, and posts where Catholics are underrepresented to the House of Commons, and of the 108 Irish county coroners, only 29 were Catholics. But still, the office of county coroner had the largest percentage of Catholics of any position in government, nearly 27 percent, and the other offices' percentages of Catholics were much lower, either zero or in single digits. But again most coroners were Protestant, and they supported the conservative local elite, If coroners for the most of the 19th century. These are men that are looking to improve their position in society as the middle class grew.
0: And you mentioned sectarian murders. Was this an era where the coroner really had to stand up to these different parts of society to make sure that the truth did come out? Yeah.
2: Um, so I in the famine years, um, according to Waddle's casebook and the research that I've done, there weren't there weren't I couldn't find any sectarian murders. It's it's in the post famine years as the politics change, and it's also that County Monaghan itself is uh you know you, you you've got a sheriff, a sub sheriff, the grand jury, and most people that are comprised of a local elite who aren't elected officials, who are hand selected. Um, they're orangemen. And so there's a certain conservative ideology that they, they all believe in. Um, and this makes it difficult for the coroner, who, when a sectarian murder does happen, um, and I have an example of one, but it puts him in conflict because he's there to seek the truth. And if there is a suspect, which there was in July of 1868, named David Beard, who was um, found to be the suspect in a, in a murder of a Catholic named Thomas Hughes, So it's Waddle is um, in a very difficult situation because the jury, uh, the inquest jury, says that they find David Beard. um, They came back with a verdict of willful murder. And what what happens is is the case is published in newspapers all around the country. So this is a national case. And the Monaghan newspaper, the conservative Northern Standard, as well as others, uh, are saying that the proceedings were ludicrous. And that it, the verdict, not just the verdict, but that Waddle is playing a little game. And so his social position as a corner, he's part of the local elite and he supports them. Um, but this isn't going to supersede him being a Presbyterian with a background of conservative and liberal politics. And the case really highlights his precarious situation as a local official that dare he disagree with the values of the local Protestant conservative elite, it put him at risk.
0: and do you think he was fair in his in his work at all times, or was he ever influenced or biased or prejudiced because of his own beliefs?
2: yeah, I think I think one area that is is difficult. I think he hmm. so some of the inquests that he investigates are clearly because there is concern in the community as to the treatment of paupers. Um, and one of the phenomenon uh, that i that I uncovered were people that were leaving the poorhouse to die within hours afterwards of starvation, emaciation, disease. And he investigates those, and he also holds to account um some of the local relief uh, committee. So there's a James Mullen who's a relief officer in the Rack Wallace Division of Monaghan Union, for example. And he says, you know, did you provide this woman with a ticket for admission to the workhouse? And he says, oh, yes, but, um, you know, I have no knowledge why she left. Well, people were leaving, and he knew that because it reflects in the cases that he chose to investigate that there was corruption and just a, a mistreatment um, and disease in the workhouses that needed to be investigated. I do also, at the same time, see Monaghan as as. Quite different, um, and, and the evidence is there of the, using the newspaper. And there's it, it, the Northern Standard is the newspaper in Monaghan, um, and at that time as well. And you can see other corners in the country, in Mayo, in Galway, and in Cork, using the newspaper to expose the, the famine crisis and about what's happening to people and they're dying of starvation. Whereas in Wattles' case, he records. Those type of inquests, but only a handful make it into the Northern Standard. So it it suggests there's an agency taking place there between himself, the Northern Standard conservative newspaper and the local elite to not want to expose what's actually happening in, in the local area.
0: Okay, it's a fascinating study. The book is called The Irish Coroner Death, Murder and Politics in County Monaghan, 1846 1878, published in hardback by Four Courts Press. The author, Michelle McGough McCann. And Michelle, thanks so much for joining us tonight.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: We'll be back with more talking history on News Talk right after this. Welcome back to talking history. 1923 was the year of Hitler's first victory. And his first defeat, fanning the flames of instability, anti-government and anti-Semitic sentiment, the Nazis' abortive yet pivotal putsch in a Munich beer hall failed when they were abandoned by their like-minded conservative allies. And the story is told in a brilliant new book by Mark Jones. It's called 1923, The Forgotten Crisis in the Year of Hitler's Coup. It's published in hardback by Basic Books. Uh, The author, as I say, Mark Jones. And Mark, uh, I think you were first on the show nine years ago.
1: That's right, yeah. Thank you, Patrick. Um, I was just reminiscing coming back in that it was 2014 when I was first here um, and at that time I was just finishing my uh, thesis which became my first book which is about Weimar Germany and the, the birth of the German Republic in the revolution of 1918-1919 and now this is the second one, the second big monograph which has taken years to write on the year 1923 when I, and in the book I wanted to tell the story of The background really to what I would describe as Hitler's breakthrough year, you know, at the end of 1922, Hitler has about 8,000 followers, members of the Nazi party. uh, Just on the eve of the putsch, that number's increased to 50,000. And in that space of time, this growth is powered. By radicalization of politics, language. I wanted to show that the the stage in which Hitler rises in detail on a month-by-month basis. And your epilogue is fascinating in terms of the way
0: telling the story of how the events of 1923 are remembered and commemorated later, especially after 1933, when Hitler comes to power, because in those years, he, you know, if you were in, if you were with him in 1923. You know that was never
1: forgotten. Um, that's that's right. Um, it's it's really Im- important to think about. You know, we're talking about the, the putsch. Uh, the putsch only lasts about twenty hours, and it's a spectacular failure. Um, Fourteen uh, of Hitler's followers are are killed um, in a shootout with police. Four police are killed, and one waiter who comes out of a restaurant who's caught in the crossfire is also is also killed. Um, and so, in no way is it really when it happens a hugely seismic event in what what Eric Hobsbawm calls the Age of Extremes. It's later, it's a decade later when the Nazis come to power that we realise that that was the founding moment of something that would profoundly and deeply shape the the 20th 20th century. Um, At the end of 1923, German liberals, one of whom I quote at the the end of the book, says, looking back at this year, you know, our descendants won't understand the hatred and chauvinism of our times. So the end of the year 1923 itself uh, there's a great deal of optimism that German democracy has survived all of the the uh, uh, challenges that are thrown at it during the course of that that pre- the previous twelve months. Unlike 1933, when when the when the republic collapses in 1923, faced with economic crisis, invasion, national humiliation, uh, German democracy survives, and it's really after 30, 33 that the event gets reinvented as being the birth of the of the Nazis and what you know in 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 Hitler reenacts the putsch they they march through the streets of Munich in 1935 they actually exhumed the bodies of the dead putschists and they reburied in a spectacular ceremony that lasts you know two two days it goes on through the night with flaming torches a social democratic observer in the city of Munich you know watches it and says you know uh, the the average person says this is a bit over the top, but there's no doubt that there's a huge amount of support for 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 the Nazis. People stood in in the streets for hours just to watch the the, the procession uh, pass by, uh, and so that's a challenge for historian of this period because how do we write about the importance of Hitler's breakthrough year without over exaggerating and without imposing the categories that the Nazis would like us to have, which is to see it as a really important event when actually it's only one of a series of of small, uh, smaller uh, uh, events in that crisis year itself, and th- that's the purpose of the book to try and show people how this event happened at the time, how it played out in, in, in how it played out live, and was seen by contemporaries in the year 1923, rather than to look back at it in kind of one of those sort of uh, forgive me for saying this kind of corny documentaries on the rise of the Nazis, you know, which show you know Hitler in a beer hall and see a pathway that's going inevitably from this point in time to 1933. Uh, So I've tried to show that in the book. Having having said that, it's important to remember that one of the leading putschists beside Hitler, who's actually killed, has a constitutional document in his pocket, which is the constitution that the leaders of the putschists would use if they actually had seized power. And that includes provision for mass murder, includes provision for the execution of any German who helps any Jew who is found uh, uh, breaching the, the the new anti-Semitic laws which the regime will introduce.
0: OK, so they're very much planning for what later becomes the the Nazi regime. So it is the year of crisis and all these multiple crises in 1923, but maybe we might start just, just a little bit before that with the assassination of Walter Rathenau uh, in 1922 because... Again, he's an important figure. The assassination is significant. And then uh, in, in post-1933, it's forbidden to commemorate or remember
1: him. That's right. So Rathenau is, is an extraordinary individual. Um, I'm sure a lot of listeners to this programme, uh, people will know the company AEG. Rathenau's father uh, founded that company um, and it brought the electric light bulb to Germany. It brought elect- electric um, technology. And Rathenau then was, you know, the son of an extremely successful father and he was an extremely successful figure in his own right, uh, a very um, successful business figure who who left his career in business to take up a position in politics, uh, first as Minister for Reconstruction in 1921, then as German Foreign Minister. There are two things about Rathenau that are really important, I think. The first one is in 1921, he tries to solve the problem of reparations, the problem of what will Germany pay to France for and, and Britain for uh, the cost of the First World War, for reconstructing the size of the part of France that's been des, uh, destroyed by the war, an area of territory the size of the Netherlands. And Rathenau uh, tries to solve that problem through Franco-German cooperation, something called the Wiesbaden uh, Accords, which in another, you know, almost, I suppose in a way of putting it, is, uh, they almost become the starting point for what becomes European integration. So one of the questions for historians of the 20th century as a whole is why is it possible after the horrors of the Second World War that Western European countries can integrate whereas after the first it's not possible. And the, the answer to that question involves saying well the ideas that lead to European integration in the 1950s are there. Rathenau is one of these people driving those ideas and that's something I think people need to to remember about him. The other thing is he is a visionary he is uh, but he's also Jewish and he's murdered by uh, a group a right wing group of um proto-Nazis, we might call them, in the summer of 1922. And I want people to focus on that because the reaction to Rathenau's murder in the summer of 1922 shows the amount of potential support for the democracy in Germany that was there at the time. There was a re-founding of the Republic. Um, perhaps as many as a million people come out into the streets of Berlin to protest, uh, to mourn Rathenau, but to protest against the actions of his killers. And that shows you that, that there is a wider range of opinion in Weimar than that just, you know, anti-systematic, uh, le- leading to again the, the rise of the Nazis. There is this this uh, potential groundswelling of pro-Republican feeling. And the question for historians is, where does it go? And, and that's there in the second half of 1922. And one of the reasons that it gets undermined, and there are never such great pro-democratic demonstrations in Weimar Germany again, one of the reasons for that is, are the crisis events of the year 1923. Yeah, let's talk about those
2: crisis
0: events, because you have huge hyperinflation, you have, uh, which plunges so many into poverty, but you also have Germany, or you have France and Belgium uh, occupying uh, the economic heartlands of Germany. Uh, You have, you know, the issues over reparations. There seems to be all of these, you know, dominoes falling at the same time, and they have huge consequences then for uh, the future of Weimar Germany.
1: So each month the crisis spirals that little bit more, and that's why I think that taking an approach to this year, uh, month by month, makes it uh, it makes it easier to untangle those crises for us today. Looking back at that at that time, while we remember that if you lived through this, you lived in it as something of a, of a whirlwind, and the starting point is the eleventh of January, uh, because on the eleventh of January, the French Prime Minister Raymond Poincare. Uh, sends French soldiers into the Ruhr district to occupy the Ruhr to accompany a a group of um, mining experts. And they are there nominally to uh, secure reparations in kind, which France argued that Germany has not been paying. And France's goals radicalised from there to to being potentially, to being... Seizing the Ruhr and making the Ruhr a part of, of France, uh, you know, to, to, to annexing the Ruhr, which would have been a sensible strategy for French imperialists at that time. The Ruhr is Germany's heartland, it's an industrial powerhouse, it's a major coal producing region in Germany, and it, taking it away from Germany would have fundamentally weakened. Uh, weakened Germany. Remember the Treaty of Versailles has taken away the eastern co-producing region in Germany in Silesia and so taking the Ruhr would have been uh, you know would, would, have, would have really fundamentally weakened Germany's economic power at a time when Germany's military power is already gone. Remember at this time France's economically not 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 strong, but military the strongest power in, in Europe. And so, Poincaré uses a military solution to uh, an economic and political crisis, sending the soldiers in. And Germany cannot respond the way a state usually responds to invasion by uh, fighting back with its army because it doesn't have an army. So, it responds by something called passive resistance. Passive resistance puts the workers of the Ruhr on strike and the German government chooses to print money to pay for the cost of that strike and to pay for the ensuing costs of the campaign of passive resistance. Initially they think this is going to be something that lasts for weeks. It lasts until late September and the reason for that is they, they know they have made a bad decision but they can't pull back from that bad decision because the passions of nationalism mean that, that, to, that to, def- to declare it a, a failure would be to, to declare bankruptcy in this, in this political battle. France is suffering too as a result of the policy of passive passive resistance but that is pushing the hyperinflation, the cause of hyperinflation. That's what makes the summer of 1923 in Germany the summer of zeros when, uh, you know, if you have dollar income, you're going to have a great time because you can cash in your dollars for billions of marks, uh, Thomas Mann, the writer, uh, famous writer, Nobel Prize winner, he writes later about how, you know, he wrote an, an article, a series of articles for an American magazine and the dollars that he got from that American publication paid for his son's boarding school fees and allowed him to live. So people like that, people with foreign income and and then ranging from like Thomas Mann to like businesses with foreign accounts, they're the winners of the hyperinflation. But the majority of people feel like they're losing. And so there's a great deal of anxiety, rivalry, uh, Uh, suffering, starvation, food. Farmers won't sell food for worthless currency because if the currency is worth nothing in a few hours, there's no point in selling your goods, you hoard them. And so there's a food supply crisis. And by the summer, it's obvious that this crisis has to end. The then-Chancellor, Kuno, he wants out of the job, he's tired. He's manoeuvring himself out of the position and Gustav Stresemann. Is is manoeuvring himself to replace him, which happens in August. And on the first cabinet meeting, Stresemann is aware we have to end passive resistance, whatever it costs. Stresemann frames it as a, as a nationalist decision. He says, you know, a real nationalist recognises when you're defeated and doesn't carry on until. To make matters worse, but precisely in this point in time, this is where the international sphere comes back into this crisis. The British government intervened with a speech by British Foreign Secretary Lord Curzon, which basically says we're about to switch to supporting Germany. And that means Stresemann can't give up the policy of of continuing to resist, and he can't give up the policy of printing notes for August and September. And when we look at those events in detail, uh, you see how different in a way that time was in terms of international politics to today. The largest European economy is on the brink. It has no functioning currency. the British leaders issue this policy that we will we, 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 we declare the occupation of the Ruhr to be illegal, which is something the Germans had said since the very start of the year, and thus opening a new possibility of new political alliances. And at that point in time, the British Prime Minister goes on holidays. And he goes on holidays to France. And while the German economy is sinking, uh, they're waiting for more news from London and Paris. Poincaré calls the British government's bluff. He recognises that what they've said in August is simply words, but he doesn't believe that they will fundamentally back it up. The pro-French lobby in London goes crazy when the when the British Foreign Secretary says, we actually think that, that France is in the wrong here. And then on, on his way back from holidays, British Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin meets with Poincaré in Paris and they declare total unity between Britain and, and and France. And that's the point then on the 26th of September when Stresemann says, we cannot delay any longer. We must end passive resistance. But a better, better functioning international system at that time, including international organisations that would allow European countries to cooperate, would have let made that brought that decision uh, to bear earlier in in, in August rather. Than, and when things are getting worse on a day by day basis, every day counts. And so that decision at the end of September to end passive resistance, to end the printing of notes, to launch a new currency. That's the green light for what I call in the book, and I think what's rightly to be called, the now or never moments for all the extremists who want to destroy Weimar democracy. Because they recognise this crisis is at the peak now and week by week things are going to get better, which means the disgruntled, the angry, the unhappy, we mobilise them now, we achieve our goals, or we miss this, crisis, this chance forever. And so for the Nazis, the model for them is Mussolini the previous year who seized, seized, seized or marched on Rome to seize power, excuse the terminology because he's actually handed power really. But uh, in the Nazi mind of 1923, he seized it. And so they, they've been calling Hitler the German Mussolini since Mussolini has become prime minister. And they want to follow in this moment and reenact and that's their their pathway to the putsch from late September to early November. That happens at the same time as the communists in the state of Saxony and Turingen where the which are left-wing states, strong strong states. I always nearly make the mistake of calling them red states, which will confuse American voters, but in Germany at the time they are red states, they are left-wing states. The communists there think now's our chance to seize power. And in the West, separatist movements in the Rhineland, with the support of France, think now's our chance to break away and form republics uh, independent of Germany. So it's a state crisis, it's an existential crisis. And to everyone's great surprise, as the weeks go by, each of these threats to the state's existence are defeated and at the end of it, the Democrats, the supporters of the Liberal Order, the supporters of the Constitution are the winners. And could Hitler's coup have succeeded? Because
0: everything you're saying shows how angry people were, the economy had been destabilised, society was in crisis, you know, people were looking around for scapegoats, they were angry, Hitler and others were able to tap into that anger. How close did they come to succeeding?
1: I think there's two ways of thinking about that question. and The first one is, could they have succeeded on the streets of Munich with the forces that they mobilised on the 8th and 9th of November? That question we can't, you know, we, we can answer it in the first with a no, because they didn't have the power to, to to succeed in Munich when it came to a firefight with the police. They actually lost quite quite quickly, as I said, it's a 20-hour 20, 20 event. Uh, the second question is, what's going on behind the scenes? and could they have succeeded had they got support from the reichswehr the german army had they got support from other conspiratorial factors in among the political leadership of the state of bavaria and i think in that sense there's uh, you, you know they're they're close behind the scenes to getting uh, m- more support for what they're considering to be the march on berlin and the, the key figure here is gustav ritter von Karr. And Gustav Ritter von Karr is... Uh, he's installed as the kind of the dictator of Bavaria to, to maintain order in Bavaria in, in the autumn. and To maintain order against threats from left and right. And if von Karr had sided with Hitler, then there's a possibility that uh, the putsch may have ended in a German civil war. We can't, you know, fast forward enough to know how that civil war might have played out because the state of Prussia to the north, the largest state in, in Weimar Germany, is largely pro-democratic, and in the democratic and social democratic forces there would probably have fought back against a march from the from from the south uh, led by conservative um, nationalists and fascists out to destroy the republic. And the, the 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 best way of answering the question is: we know why that didn't happen. That clash never happened because people like von Karr, even though they were rabid nationalists, even though they wanted the monarchies back, and even though they hated the republic, they calculated. If we try this fight, we're going to lose. And so they step back, but their stepping back happens in the darkness, it happens in conspiratorial places, it happens in secret meetings. Hitler has spent the year screaming, and it's very much the Hitler we know from downfall at the end of the film where he's at the table screaming. That's That's the personality we have in 1923. He spent the year screaming, we're going to destroy this republic. They're all weaklings. They're they're our eternal enemy. They're Jews. They're social democrats. They're not real men. We're going to go and beat them up. And when you scream like that at your followers for a whole year and the state's on its knees, you can't not try and seize power. And so that's the platform he puts himself on. And when he fails, it's a spectacular failure. He's extremely depressed and he spends, you know, the weeks around Christmas in a state of depression possibly suicidal uh, in prison in Landesburg near Munich and it's only the same process that is part of his leadership style for the rest of his career that brings him back. He blames other people for his defeat. He blames other people for his failures and he gets ready to go again and when he's released from prison you know the dead of the putsch are on his mind in his first speech. He dedicates Mein Kampf to them and he learns to to you know pick himself up off off the, the canvas of the floor and to get going again. He remobilizes himself and he takes gambles again. You see that same pattern of political leadership uh, the gambler who blames others for every failure, who chooses a more radical decision after each defeat. That, that becomes his style of leadership from 1933 onwards. Well, democracy
0: being undermined, the rise of populism, attempted coups, you know, lots that uh, uh, readers in the present day uh, will be able to see certain uh, resonances here in this brilliant new book. It's called 1923, The Forgotten Crisis in the Year of Hitler's Coup, published in hardback by Basic Books. The author is Mark Jones. And Mark, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you, Patrick. And that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa O'Sullivan and to Peter Malloy on sound. Next week, we're going to be looking at the history of Ireland's oldest public library, Marsh's Library in Dublin. And we'll be finding out why it was created and how it has evolved. So join us next week. We've been Talking History. Good night.